Hey, Miss Alex, how did Santa like his cookies this year? You know, we started testing recipes after Thanksgiving. And so by Christmas, we had a really good sugar cookie recipe and chocolate chip cookie recipe. So I think Santa was happy. We <laughs> threw in some carrots for his reindeer. So it was a good situation. For our family as well, uh, holidays are such a big focus around food and family getting together. The amount of money I pushed out between butter, vanilla extract, and actual real chocolates, like it's a thing, a whole other line item in addition to gifts and full-on meals. Absolutely. I can't even imagine what it's like for people who have, you know, less means than we do at this time. Yeah. I mean, I feel like families are really forced to get creative. I mean, even us, you know, we really had to get creative around sides, around, you know, main proteins. Is it going to be chicken or lobster or lamb or you know, lobster was out of the question for us. My children wouldn't appreciate it anyway. <laughs> From First Focus on Children, this is Speaking of Kids. I'm Bruce Leslie. And I'm Masela Chalubi. Speaking of Kids is a podcast that puts kids at the center of public policy. You know, Bruce, this whole conversation around holidays and, you know, the connectivity to meals got me to really start to think about in America, we're the richest country in the world. But we have kids today who don't even know where their next meal is coming from. If I had any wish for the new year, it would be that we wouldn't let kids go hungry. And yet we do because Congress often forgets about kids. They're treated as an afterthought. And they're often targeted for budget cuts because they don't have a lot of political power. They're often invisible to lawmakers. Again, that's a wild concept, I think, even for a lot of our listeners to digest, right? Because at the end of the day, we're talking about children that are feeling anxious and scared in some cases because they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And yet in the halls of Congress, it's not viewed as a real immediate life situation that so many children and families are dealing with. It's unbelievable we let kids in this nation go to bed hungry and instead in the halls of Congress, often the focus rather than on children and their needs, it's often about the other interests related to nutrition, such as the sugar lobby, the dairy lobby, the cattle industry. They really do have all the power and the attention of Congress. This is a twofold conversation, right? Because yes, we're talking about food insecurity, but then also to your point, it's the quality of the food and what's being presented in schools and in grocery stores. I mean, we know ingredients that are banned. I feel like every other day on Instagram, I'm seeing a pediatrician or a physician talking about all the different ingredients that are banned in Europe and other parts of the world that are allowed in candies and in you know sports drinks in America. And it just seems wild. Yeah. What's unbelievable is that we subsidize things like sugar and different industries. And consequently, food that is not nutritious is often cheaper than things that are nutritious, such as fruits and vegetables, which we don't subsidize in the same way. So for low-income families, basically Congress is steering them to eating less healthy food. That just doesn't make any sense. And, and it's particularly harmful to kids. And, you know, I've shared this with you before, Bruce, my obsession with 
Blue Zones, the Netflix documentary, and this whole, you know, quest for longevity and just living a healthy life. And when you start to backtrack, it really does start with kids, right? It's like these kids now were developing habits as kids, healthy eating habits. I mean, even now my five-year-old, I feel like because of what he's learning in school, every time he picks something up, he's like, oh, you know, is this healthy, mommy? And, you know, it's that conversation, right? Where it's like, yes, in moderation, every once in a while, but oftentimes kids don't have a choice. If they're relying on school lunch, they're just being presented with what they get. For a lot of families, it's difficult to even understand what's in the ingredient list and making good, healthy choices based on what you can get in the grocery store, what's accessible for your children at school. It's very overwhelming and it doesn't seem like it serves us well as a country. You know, eventually these kids are going to get older. They're going to be more set in their ways in terms of their food preferences and what they like. And it gets harder to make those transitions to make healthy food choices. Absolutely. We have a system set up that by which the subsidies for families are so low that they actually run out of funding in the middle of a month. And so what you see is spikes of hunger in the latter part of months. And that that's a public policy decision. And it really makes no sense. We really need to do a complete revamp of our nutrition programs and make sure that we do not leave people mm-hmm. hungry. Yeah, I am very excited for our guest today. Nell Menefi-Libe serves as public policy manager for the National WIC Association, the nonprofit membership and advocacy organization representing state and local WIC agency staff. In this role, she works to build support for WIC on Capitol Hill and in the administration, as well as representing NWA in a variety of cross-cutting anti-poverty coalitions. Nell, thank you so much for being with us today. We're excited to have you. Yes, welcome to Speaking of Kids. Thank you so much for having me. You know, you serve as public policy manager at the National WIC Association. Can you share a little bit about your story and what led you to the organization and share a little bit about the mission of the association? Sure. So the National WIC Association is the nonprofit member and advocacy organization representing WIC staff across the country. So everyone from the person who greets you when you come in the front door of a WIC clinic all the way up to state directors, as well as the nearly 7 million women, infants, and children served by the program. I am public policy manager, which is essentially the the fancy way of saying our lobbyist. I do most of our our Capitol Hill and administration-facing work, and I've been at NWA for about a year and a half, but working on WIC for close to four years now. In previous life, I was congressional staff. Uh, I have a degree in the study of women and gender, and I've always been focused really on how federal policy shapes family formation. So I'm, I'm really excited to be doing this work. Well, tell us a little bit more about how does WIC operate and how do people get access services to the program? Sure. So WIC is entering its 50th year. It is a a public health nutrition program that provides targeted food benefits and nutrition services for specific life stages. So pregnancy, postpartum, and then uh, birth through a child's fifth birthday. And the food package is based in nutrition science. It's intended to provide really specific nutrients to support healthy pregnancy, a healthy postpartum period, and optimal child development outcomes. And then equally important to the food package 
in the broader program scope is uh, WIC's nutrition education mission. And WIC also acts as a major connector for families to other public services for which they're eligible. We know that often for new parents, the, the WIC clinic will be the first stop that they make. And we are the folks who will connect them out to a pediatrician for their well-child visits, also connecting folks to things like early childhood literacy programs, um, making sure that they are signed up for, for Medicaid or for CHIP. And part of WIC's real strength is our on-the-ground footprint in communities that allows us to reach families where they are. Following up on that, can you share a little bit about how critical of a role WIC plays in in the lives of these 7 million families? Yeah, we now have 50 years worth of evidence showing the incredible public health outcomes that WIC facilitates. WIC leads to measurable improvements in pregnancy outcomes, things like longer pregnancies, lower instances of low birth weight, so uh, improved birth outcomes as well, and healthier child development outcomes, higher cognitive development scores, lower rates of obesity, as well as improved diet quality overall. We've seen uh, improved intake of fruits and vegetables among toddlers enrolled in WIC in the past couple of years, which is really exciting. I am not a mom, but all of my mom friends tell me that it's it's no mean feet to get toddlers to eat their vegetables. So it's exciting to see measurable progress on that front in the program. But because we are embedded in communities, also acts as a trusted resource for these families and and connects them to other services for which they they may be eligible. And that is part of, of the program's real strength. We're also the nation's largest breastfeeding support program. So we facilitate breastfeeding support and access to breastfeeding support professionals for low-income families as well. Well, our listeners weren't able to see, but both Sally and I were nodding enthusiastically about the difficulty of getting dollars to eat vegetables. So it is really a great thing. And, and one of the things for our listeners I would say is that we really value our partnership with the National WIC Association because at first focus, we think of the whole child. So we think about their health, nutrition, education. And I think one of the amazing things that WIC does is the linkages it provides to those other services. I know that WIC does things like refer people for immunizations and mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. So WIC is not just a freestanding entity. It, it really does have all these amazing linkages for moms and kids throughout the communities. So tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah. Our uh, state and local WIC agencies who administer the program work really, really closely with community partners, with other state programs, with other federal programs. So WIC clinics are often co-located in federally qualified health centers. That means that a kid might be able to go in for their well-child visit and go directly to the WIC clinic for their regular recertification. That's also often the place where they would see a dentist, maybe. There are lots of resources in that, in that one individual place so that they're easy to access for families. My favorite part of my job is getting to work with WIC staff who are all wonderful people. They do this work because they're dedicated to it and because they are dedicated to these families. And local agency staff really go above and beyond to serve the families in their programs. And they work really hard to build connections with other community programs. And so you'll see things like partnerships with early childhood literacy programs so that Uh, Families will go into the WIC clinic for their visit, and they might also get a book or a couple of books for their kid um, targeted to that specific age period. There are also WIC clinics that 
run car seat loan programs so that if families can't afford a car seat for themselves, they can borrow one from the WIC clinic. And then when their kid gets a little bit older and ages out of that car seat, they can return it and it will go back to the next family who needs it. There are also lots of collaborations with with local diaper banks, with local human milk banks. There are all kinds of resources that WIC serves as a connector for and that makes sure that these families have the best possible start for their kids. Right now, what are the challenges that WIC is facing with respect to funding? Sure. I think we have been fortunate for that the entirety of, of WIC's history as a program, we have enjoyed very strong bipartisan support, such that for almost 30 years at this point, there has been an agreement between Congress and the administration that has survived changes of, of control of Congress and the White House to treat WIC like a mandatory program, even though we are discretionary funding. So while that means that Congress needs to proactively provide the funds to allow us to keep the lights on and the doors open every year, understanding the importance of WIC's critical mission and the support that, that the program provides to low-income families, there has been an agreement to provide whatever funds are necessary such that every eligible individual who seeks WIC services can receive them. And we have more than two and a half decades of precedent to that point, which we're, we're really proud of, and that has gone a long way in allowing the program to reach more families. Unfortunately, for the first time in this millennium, Congress is in danger of turning their back on that promise. The appropriations bills being considered in, in both the House and the Senate, this Congress, do not adequately fund the program. And we have new research out just this week from our good friends at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, estimating that if WIC were to receive flat funding from fiscal year 2023, that would result in 2 million individuals being turned away from the program by the end of September 2024. We're talking about low-income moms in the middle of a national maternal health crisis who would lose access to healthy food. We're talking about kids getting ready to start kindergarten who would no longer be able to have those fresh fruits and vegetables that they rely on for their healthy development. Uh, that's just an unacceptable outcome to our mind. And thankfully, Congress has about a month left before the next funding deadline to get themselves together and provide the resources that the program needs to ensure that we're serving all of these families in the year to come. Well, just as a quick follow-up on that, you mentioned the Fresh Fruits and Vegetables program and then also the shortfall in WIC. Isn't there also something specific to them targeting cuts just to the Fresh Fruits and Vegetables program? Yeah. Unfortunately, House Republicans have proposed rolling back WIC's fruit and vegetable benefit. So for context, prior to 2021, WIC's fruit and vegetable benefit was only $9 a month for kids and $11 a month for adults. Obviously, that doesn't go very far in providing fruits and vegetables that families need, which Congress recognized and proactively increased the benefit in 2021. That was in alignment with independent evidence-based recommendations from the National Academies of Science, um, and that has been extended in prior appropriations bills as well on a bipartisan basis. So right now, the fruit and vegetable benefit is $26 a month for kids and $49 to $52 a month for pregnant and postpartum participants. It's a little bit higher for those who are breastfeeding. And as I mentioned earlier, we have seen measurable increases in fruit and vegetable consumption among WIC and roll toddlers as a result of that increased benefit, which is really exciting. But unfortunately, House Republicans have proposed taking an unprecedented step, which would be to cut WIC's food benefit in order to defray program costs. That has never been done before. 
but they are proposing up to a 70% cut in fruits and vegetable issuances because they do not think that that is a, a worthwhile use of government money, which again, would really be unacceptable to our minds. We're grateful that the Senate Agriculture Appropriations Bill has proposed extending those higher fruits and vegetable benefit levels, and we're hopeful that that will make it into any final spending agreement. This is coming off the heels of the recent child poverty data that came out, right? That shows a drastic increase in child poverty across the United States. Yeah. This seems like a double whammy oftentimes for a lot of families. Can you talk about what this means for families on the front line, like what you're hearing from these families? I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think this really does fit into a broader picture. And it's not just child poverty. We've seen huge increases in child poverty and child food insecurity in the past couple of years. I think it's important to think about these proposed cuts to the WIC program as part of a really disturbing broader trend of Congress turning their backs on families. WIC provides really vital support. And I think it's important to keep in mind that we have a limited window of time to reach these families. We know that the health gains that WIC facilitates are really vital in setting the building blocks for lifelong well-being for these kids. And if we, we miss the opportunity to support them in those really crucial early years, we don't get another shot at it. And turning them away from the program would mean failing to support them during that period. How do families access WIC? Like if you're a pregnant woman and you have a baby, how do you, you know, enroll in the system? Yeah, that's a good question. WIC has historically, I think as I've said a couple of times, had a very strong on-the-ground footprint in communities, and that has facilitated a lot of collaboration with other community partners and allowed the program to meet families where they are, which has been really important historically. But we have also had a huge shift in service delivery in the past couple of years. So beginning in 2020, WIC clinics had to almost overnight stand up an online service option for families. That was done, obviously, to protect the health of participants as well as WIC staff. But I think the, the sort of silver lining here is that it was something of a, a push into the 21st century for what can admittedly be kind of a 20th century program. But what that means now is that families have the option to get certified on the program, do their sort of initial intake appointment or their, their annual check-in appointment by phone or by video conference. And that's particularly important for folks who may not have access to reliable transportation, parents who can't take time off of work or can't pull their kiddos out of daycare, which has otherwise been a major barrier to participation for a lot of families. And we've seen that payoff in the raw numbers. Prior to 2020, there was about a decade-long decline in WIC participation. We peaked at our, our largest numbers ever at the beginning of the Great Recession, and then there was a, a decade-long decrease, and that has turned around in recent years. We are currently serving just shy of 6.7 million individuals. Our best projections are that the program will reach 7 million uh, individuals in fiscal year 24. And most encouragingly, the biggest gains that we've seen in the past couple of years have been among children ages one to four, which has historically been the hardest participant category to retain in the program. We see really high rates of participation for infants, so kids in that first year of life. And for postpartum participants, it's a little bit lower for pregnant participants who often don't get connected to the program until later in pregnancy. And then we see a lot of attrition as kids age off of the program. Families will decide not to recertify year after year 
um, maybe making the calculation that for them, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, so to speak. I think the combination of those new remote service options and the higher fruit and vegetable benefit has changed that calculation for a lot of families and is allowing us to reach more kids, which is really exciting. Right now, those remote service options are available due to a temporary waiver from USDA. We are strongly encouraging Congress to make that a permanent option in the program, knowing that it's gone a long way in helping us reach more families. But that is sort of another major priority of the National Wick Association in the medium term. Nell just gave us a great overview of WIC services and the effectiveness of their programs. Yes, it's important to hear that WIC participation is increasing, particularly in light of the fact that child poverty has doubled due to the expiration of the child tax credit. But what I'm really curious about is how do they plan to reach low-income women and children across the country despite the potential budget cuts that are looming? We'll find out coming up after the break. Making the world a better place for all children can seem like an impossibly huge task. Some of you may be thinking, I am just one person. What could I possibly do to make a difference? I'm Leila Nimatala, Vice President of Advocacy and Mobilization at First Focus on Children. And I'm inviting you to join us and become one of our volunteer advocates, whom we call our Ambassadors for Children. Ambassadors are our most active child advocates who raise critical issues with the U.S. Congress and with the administration related to child policy and funding decisions, both for kids in the U.S. and worldwide. But don't take my word for it. We asked one of our ambassadors to share her experience. My name is Amy Jo Hutchison. I'm a born and raised West Virginian who also happens to be an economic justice organizer and I'm the founder of a grassroots movement here, Rattle the Windows. What drew me to the ambassador program with First Focus on Children was my lived experience of poverty. As a mother of two, living in one of the poorest states in the nation, advocating for children in poverty is very personal to me. A lot of people see numbers when they look at data and reports, but when I see new findings and reports on child poverty, I see my kids, and I see their friends, our neighbors, and the people who I interact with every day and I trust First Focus on Children. I have personally stepped into spaces that they've created for parents like me to be heard. What would I tell someone thinking about becoming an ambassador with First Focus on Children? Well, first of all, very few, if any, huge shifts in the way our country addresses economic justice issues have taken place without grassroots involvement. First Focus on Children has created an entry point for people like me to get involved with this ambassador program. It's an easily accessible way for us to become engaged, informed, and to turn our pain into power. I really hope you'll join them. So please join us, won't you? Check out campaignforchildren.org backslash ambassadors on how to become a first Focus on Children ambassador and to link up with our fabulous community of committed child advocates. First Focus on Children is a bipartisan advocacy organization dedicated to making children and families the priority in federal policy and budget decisions. First Focus on Children moves beyond individual issues to serve a more important role, children's advocacy. We educate lawmakers and the American public about the issues facing children. 
To learn more about our work and ways that you can become ambassadors, go to firstfocus.org. Coming up in State of Play, we are inviting Abby Malloy, our Director of Health, Environment, and Nutrition Policy, to chat about the greater nutrition issues that Americans face today. Now let's get back to Nell from the WIC Association. It sounds like there's an increase in demand, right, for a lot of these services. And because of technology modifications and upgrades, this allows for more accessibility. So with the upcoming potential cuts, like what does this look like for you? I mean, are you all thinking of mainly just playing defense to maintain the existing current funding levels? Or, you know, do you think there might remotely be an opportunity for a level of increase to kind of meet this demand? It would be really unprecedented for Congress to fail to fund the program in this way. We are certainly not ready to throw in the towel and are committed to getting the ball across the finish line here. What that looks like right now, uh, were the program to be flat funded, that would be providing $6 billion in funding for fiscal year 24. And we know that that's a billion dollars short of what's necessary to serve projected caseloads. Should Congress fail to fully fund the program, there are only really a couple of levers available to create cost savings in order to make up that budget shortfall. For the the state agencies that administer WIC on the state level, they cannot cut the food benefit, they cannot change eligibility standards. And so what that means is that they will try and make up the savings either by cutting their own staff and clinic hours and outreach efforts, which would be a horrible outcome, but also unfortunately not produce that much savings, which means that the only option that's left available to them is turning families away from the program. And that would be a huge step backwards for the program. We have served every eligible person who walks in the door since the late 1990s. And I think even just the possibility of turning folks away has begun to undermine participant trust in the program. The most recent participation numbers that we have available to us are from September of this year, which is right before the end of the prior fiscal year. But when conversations were starting to crop up in the public eye about the possibility of failing to fully fund the program, and we have seen a modest decrease in participation from August of this year because the word started to get out to families that they might not be able to access the program. All of this uncertainty in D.C. has real and tangible impacts for the families that the program serves. And my big fear is that uh, a couple of weeks worth of political infighting will serve to undo years of good work being done by state and local WIC agency staff to get more families connected to the program. So I'm going to ask you a really arcane budget question. Great. I love this. (laughs) Congress is operating under a continuing resolution, which basically keeps funding at last year's levels but then has told WIC to go ahead and serve you know, whoever's eligible. Mm-hmm. So consequently, when and if a budget gets passed and let's say then they fund it well below the levels that is needed by WIC in mid-year, that even compounds the harm, right? That means that you almost have to make double the level of cuts because you were not doing it for the whole year. You're actually doing it for only a partial part of the year. Right. That's exactly right. So congressional appropriators, again, recognizing the importance of the program and not wanting to turn anyone away during the duration of these continuing resolutions, 
have done what I've been calling some magic budget math. The formal name is apportionment flexibilities. So what that means is that while WIC has been flat funded, they provided the same level of resources from fiscal year 23 to fiscal year 24. They are allowing the program to draw down those resources at whatever rate is necessary to ensure no one is turned away in the short term. While that does avert a crisis for now, and and we're grateful for that, it's something of a Band-Aid on a bullet hole, because what that means is that the later in the fiscal year Congress pushes off this final funding decision, the deeper cuts would be necessary should extra resources not be provided to the program. That's why we saw estimates, again, from our good friends over at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities several months ago before the beginning of the new fiscal year, projecting uh, 600,000 individuals would be turned away from the program. That is in and of itself a, a deeply unacceptable outcome. But because Congress has given themselves several extensions, like high schoolers doing a group project, those cuts are now much, much deeper And if they were to only provide flat funding for fiscal year 24, again, that could result in 2 million people being turned away from the program. Wow. And, you know, now the average WIC participant or just the average American does not understand all this. But what are you doing to elevate their voice and maybe showcasing their stories to members to let them know, you know, you outlined that perfectly, right? Like, this is a high school group project that no one can kind of get all their points around participation. But how do you elevate their stories in a way that really resonate that it's more than just a number, you know, like these are real families and real children that are being impacted? Yeah, I mean, WIC is an incredibly popular program across the aisle. Democrats, Republicans, independents all overwhelmingly support WIC. And when I speak to people who might not be familiar with the program, obviously the idea of providing healthy foods to toddlers is an overwhelmingly popular one. But it is maybe not not the biggest or highest profile program. Certainly we serve a, a smaller portion of the public than SNAP does, which also means that there's a smaller dollar value attached overall. And so maybe it gets a little bit less attention from Congress. But bringing the stories of of WIC participants to the forefront, I think, has has gone a long way in building both public awareness of the program and public support. The National WIC Association, just the past couple of years, thanks to the efforts of a dear colleague of mine, has stood up what we're calling our, our Participant Advisory Council. So that's about a dozen current or recent WIC participants, so mostly WIC moms or, or grandparents whose kids are on the program, who have been advising us on uh, what kind of updates the program needs in order to better serve families, what WIC does in their lives, how, how it supports them. But they have also graciously been a wonderful spokespeople for the program. They've been you know, giving interviews to, to newspapers and on radio and TV talking about the difference that WIC made for them and the importance of, of why it needs to be a reliable resource to families. And we have also been bringing our members, so that's uh, state and local agency staff, to Capitol Hill in, in recent weeks and months to, to speak directly to their members of Congress about the work that they do every day to support families. I think you're absolutely right. Like the polling we've seen and that you all have conducted and other people have conducted have show really strong support for WIC. And I would also point in episode two of our podcast, we talked to Celinda Lake, who did polling for us on 
looking at the budget implications of various issues. And for years and years, I think the number one thing people were concerned about in kid policy was things like child abuse and neglect in education. But I will point out in this most recent one, by a, let's see, it's a 64 to 5% margin, people felt we were spending too little rather than too much on reducing child hunger. And so that was the number one issue. In light of all that, when people call their member of Congress, what should they say to address this problem? The term of art here is full funding. The way that that WIC funding works historically is that USDA communicates to Congress how much money is going to be necessary for the next fiscal year in order to serve every eligible person who walks in the door. That number is called full funding, and that's historically the amount of resources that Congress provides. So if you are so moved to call up your member of Congress and urge them to support the WIC program, you can ask them to fully fund WIC so that no one is turned away. I think it's also important if you want to go above and beyond and get some extra credit there to underscore the importance of continuing to provide WIC's science-based food benefit. What that means is not cutting WIC's fruit and vegetable benefit, which is really important in public health outcomes and incredibly popular with families. So thankfully, it's a, it's a pretty easy ask, even for, for lay people who don't spend their time swimming around in the congressional budget in the same way that you and I do. But fully funding the program is really the ask that, that we are bringing to lawmakers in the next month. I think the, the January 19th funding deadline, when the, the agriculture appropriations continuing resolution expires, I think is our real last date to get this done. So I keep telling folks if they have been looking for a sign about whether they should get involved in WIC advocacy, think of this as their sign. You should get involved. <laughs> Absolutely. This episode will run just weeks before that. So we definitely would encourage our listeners to weigh in on, on this very critically important issue. Nell, thanks so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great time. Yeah, Nell, thank you so much. Before we let you go, we love to ask each of our guests, what song or what album do you turn to for inspiration to offset the challenges that you face day to day? That's a fun question. I believe deeply in my soul that it's impossible to have a bad day while you're listening to Stevie Wonder. So we play a lot of Stevie Wonder in this house at loud volume because uh, nothing seems quite as bad when you're listening to, to Sir Duke. I love it. That's awesome. That's a strong addition, Mel. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have a particular set of songs or song that you love of his? My folks have a live album on a record that whenever I go home to my parents' house, we'll, we'll play on their record player. It's one of my favorite things to do when I'm, when I'm home at Christmas. So looking forward to doing that. Awesome. That's awesome. As promised, we'd like to introduce Abby Malloy, Director of Health, Environment, and Nutrition Policy here at First Focus on Children. Hi, Abby. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. We talked to our friends today at the, the National WIC Association, and so they talked a lot about the issues that are challenging for WIC right now. But we wanted to ask you about sort of the bigger, broader questions around child nutrition. So why is it that families and kids should care about things like 
you know, the farm bill, for example, or and of course, I mean, obviously school lunch, but how are some of those other things that affect the nutrition of kids? What's going on with them and what's sort of the state of play in Congress with respect to those issues? I think one of the key things that I think folks don't necessarily connect the dots on is that nutrition is as much of a health issue as it is anything. And I think in America in particular, when we think of like a malnourished or an undernourished or a starving kid, quote unquote, we don't picture kids in America. We don't really think that that's something that we have an issue with, because especially having so many issues with obesity and cardiovascular and these kind of what would appear to be an issue of nutritional excess is not really the case. So we've got something called the Child and Student Nutrition Alliance that brought together a lot of different health groups, children's health groups, disease groups. And so a lot of our work just centers around making that connection that health and nutrition are one and the same. So when we have folks without a lot of resources eating a lot of processed foods that are cheaper, they're more accessible, they're easy to get your hands on, those kids are overweight. And at the same time, they're extremely nutrient deficient. So they're not, you know, quote unquote, starving, they're not losing weight, but they don't have the nutrients they need to be healthy. So obesity is not this issue of excess and lack of exercise. Kids, you know, they might be coming home from school and, you know, sitting in front of the TV, but that's not why they're morbidly obese. A lot of the times, especially for kids in poverty, that's because they can't access the right foods like fresh produce, fresh meat, high fiber and whole carbs, uh, whole wheat carbs. And they're developing these issues like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, hypertension, cardiovascular disease super early on because they're undernourished and you just can't physically see it in them. And I think that's where a lot of the policymakers kind of have that disconnect. They're not going, oh, well, we don't have starving kids, and we do. And WIC and SNAP food stamps are especially important because they specifically let kids access these whole foods, these produces, these whole foods that help you feel full. Because, you know, we've all eaten an entire bag of like hot Cheetos. And then 45 <laughs> minutes later, we're starving and we're eating more food. And that's what these kids go through for every single meal. And that's a huge, huge issue. And then that also ties into the Farm Bill, which I'm super glad you brought that up. Why is it so important that American families be aware of the Farm Bill and how it affects them? It's authorized or reauthorized, rather, through September 30th of 2024. They extended it a year from 2023, but we're looking at a fight probably in early spring. And, you know, when you think of Farm Bill, of course, you think of agriculture and conservation policy. And that's all really important for kids in terms of just having environmental implications and climate implications, racial justice and agriculture and all of that uplift kids and especially kids of color. But really, the bulk of the bill, probably over, you know, 75 percent is focused in this Title IV, which has all of the nutrition policy in it. And most importantly, it has SNAP, which is what we really think of when we're saying food stamps. And there's 14 million kids on SNAP right now. And much like WIC, the funds that folks and their families get from food stamps is what allows them to purchase whole foods, healthier foods that keep kids full. It gives them the nutrients they need to really grow and thrive and have better health outcomes later in life. And so what we're anticipating is that there will be a lot of attempts to limit SNAP eligibility. The way they do this is often through time limits. They often will refer to them as work requirements, which is 
pretty inaccurate because those already exist. If you're on Snap, with a few exceptions, if you're not working for three months or more, you're removed from the program for three years, which is already incredibly harsh. But any attempts to make that more strict or expand that to more groups is going to in turn come back and hurt kids because if adults can't get SNAP, kids can't have SNAP. And that's a huge, huge issue for folks and their families. A lot of these have even been centered on families with kids and parents with young kids, which a little bit ludicrous, but here we are. But importantly, the farm bill gives us an opportunity to, on the other hand, not only just protect SNAP by getting rid of these proposed amendments and things like that, but actually strengthen SNAP. And I think any legislation that expands access, expands access to the types of foods that you can get on SNAP is really important. So Abby, tell us about the issues around hot meals and the nutrition programs. Sure. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. The Hot Foods Act, which is particularly helpful for families who are uh, experiencing what's known as time poverty, where if they're working, you know, two, sometimes three jobs, they just don't have time to give their kids anything but packaged foods, frozen chicken nuggets, because you're working 16 hours a day. You can't cook for your kids. You're just trying to make sure that they're fed. But there's such strict limitations on what foods you're allowed to purchase through SNAP that you know, you can't purchase any sort of hot or pre-prepared food. And that includes a rotisserie chicken, that includes anything from a hot bar, a salad bar, which in turn, you know, you have these arguments where folks are saying, oh, well, people are only buying potato chips and blah, blah, blah with snap and candy, which isn't true. But what else are they supposed to purchase? We just end up in this really funny cycle. And my partner actually works at a grocery store. And just this weekend, he was helping someone who was trying to purchase literally a rotisserie chicken. And he was scanning it. And the woman was like, I don't know why I still have this balance. What, what's going on? And he discovered it was because she had a rotisserie chicken. And she was like, I just don't have time to cook for my kids. And so now these kids now have to eat you know, a frozen meal, highly processed chicken nuggets, highly processed frozen prepackaged foods that take the same amount of time to prepare as just carving up a rotisserie chicken, which would be so much more filling, so much more nutrient dense for these kids. And it's, yeah, it's really unfortunate, but the Farm Bill gives us an opportunity to change a lot of those things. So there'll be lots of opportunities for advocacy on the ground and in Washington. So we hope folks will join us for that. Just pushing for these really positive bills that we can sneak in to make SNAP all that it can be and really just do the best that it can. Thank you so much, Abby, for that. I feel like one of the things that First Focus does really well is we pull together groups from different sectors to kind of really come together. And like you outlined in the alliance that you formed the last two years, it's been gaining momentum. Um, and we have folks from education sector, obviously nutrition sector, poverty sector. Like you said, nutrition impacts all facets of, of children's lives, in particular school lunch. What's the alliance doing in terms of you know, addressing some of the nutritional standards in schools? It's pretty contentious in schools right now. There's a lot of this kind of post-Michelle Obama pushback. People don't like whole wheat Pop-Tarts, this sort of thing. Especially hot button news right now has been the whole milk debate. And so what we've been working on is commenting on some of the proposed USDA uh, nutrition standards that have come out 
that have been really impactful and have the opportunity to be really impactful for the types of food that kids eat in school. Because the nutritional quality of those meals has such a long lasting impact on their education, their ability to focus. There are studies that even show that kids who have access to universal school meals are actually less likely to get suspended. You know, how are you supposed to focus and, you know, sit down, behave if you, you're starving? And so that's one of our main priorities, just making sure that it's clear that for, yes, physical health, but emotional and mental health, these food and nutrition programs, especially in schools, are just as important. If you're a listener to the podcast, it sounds to me like WIC is an eminent issue yeah. in terms of the funding. You're telling us that there's going to be a fight over the farm bill and the SNAP or food stamp program in the spring or sometime through the summer of next year. What are things that listeners can do? How can they engage in this conversation and get their members of Congress to take action in a positive manner for kids? One of the best things you can do is just contact them and contact them and bombard them and bombard them and let them know how important this is to your community. If you can reach out into your community, find out how many folks are utilizing these programs because there are in every single county town, there's folks who are on Wick and Snap, even if you don't realize it. And if you can just highlight how important, especially if you've ever been on Snap or Wick, let them know about your impact, what you've seen, how you've experienced health changes, and anything along those lines, just calling, emailing, and letting them know how important this is to you and letting them know how important this is to commit to kids' health when you commit to these programs. Abby, thank you so much for joining us today. Your insights were very helpful at, you know, dissecting not only, you know, what's going on within WIC, but then also giving us a bigger, broader picture of what children are facing in the nutrition space. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Abby. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's so important that we're talking about these issues. I really appreciate it. This is Speaking of Kids. Thanks for listening. I'm Bruce Leslie. And I'm Masella Jalubi. Special thanks to our guests, Nell Menefi-Libe and Abby Malloy. Speaking of Kids is a podcast by First Focus on Children. Elizabeth Windham is the supervising producer and Julia Windham is the associate producer. Layla Nimitala is the advocacy and mobilization producer and the senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our theme music is Don't Look Twice by Sam Barsh. For more information about this week's episode, go to firstfocus.org. You can find all our links in our show notes. If you have any thoughts, questions, or interest in becoming a First Focus on Children ambassador, email us at speakingofkids@firstfocus.org. And please follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Speaking of Kids is produced by Winhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic. 